0: you all, team. Thank you so much. You know, in the early days of 2020, when coronavirus raised its ugly head, all the talk was, when we get back to normal, when we get back to normal. Remember that? (laughs) Well… We've not got back to normal yet, and we may never get back to normal. Makes no difference. There are all sorts of mutations now. There's Delta mutation. It's going kind to of followed by Lambert, Lambden, and We may be going to go through the Greek alphabet. <laughs> but the reason we keep talking about this when we get back to normal is because we as human beings, we have the natural longing in our hearts for better days. We have the natural longing in our hearts for time of peace, for longing for harmony. We have longing, a desire for economic stability, for less crime and conflict. That's normal. And yet, the Word of God makes it very clear that despite of all the times of temporary respite that we experience as long the journey on our way to heaven, the times of respite that C.S. Lewis calls permanent peace, permanent tranquility, only will take place when Christ comes to reign and rule in righteousness and in truth amen amen in uh, matthew twenty four twenty one might as well go ahead and turn to it now matthew twenty four twenty one Jesus said, at the end of time, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of time until now, nor ever shall be. This tribulation is going to encompass the whole globe. Throughout history, there are times of tribulation in certain parts of the world, but not in others. But the so-called Great Tribulation is going to be a global Tribulation. The whole, no one, as we saw in the last message, will escape it. And that will be the indication of the nearness of the return of Christ to take His children, to take His believers home to heaven. Yes. Now, let me hasten to say that Jesus also said that no one knows that day. It could be today or a hundred years from now. Only the Father knows that day, but we live every day always in anticipation it may be today. So now you already turned to Matthew 24, I hope, and if you don't have your own Bible, grab one in the pew in front of you, page 1538. Matthew 24, we are continuing In the series, we started in the last message. Now, if you were not here, let me plead with you, when you go home, download the last message from last Sunday, because you are like a person who have come into the movie in the middle of it. Uh, You kind of said, what? What's going on here? But as much as I can, I'm going to do some recap. But nonetheless, download it from last week if you weren't here. You got it? 24, beginning at 15. We looked at the first 14 verses. Now we go 15 to 28. And as we have been doing, and we will do throughout this series of messages, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the Word of God, and I'm going to read the very first verse, which is verse 15, and then I'm going to let you read the rest of it so that the Word of God can sink in. So when you see standing in the holy place... The abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Go. Holy Spirit of God, You have authored these words, and we ask You, in the name of Jesus, that You open our eyes to understand the meanings, so that we will produce fruit of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. In the last message, I shared with you, from the Word of God, what Jesus explained to the disciples when they asked the question, what are the signs of your return? And he talks about the labor pains of a pregnant woman. And we saw six signs of labor pains. And that's why I'm saying download them. We saw six signs of the nearness of the return of Christ, six birth pains that indicates that we're coming toward the end of the pregnancy and the great event of the return of Christ. Let me remind you that we have seen throughout history these six signs have always been around. The only difference is that when they come nearer to the time of return of Christ, that these labor pains are going to be increasing in rapidity. Uh, The only difference is we come closer to the return of Christ. they are going to increase in severity until the child is born. Then here in this passage, our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about two distinct events. I'm going to explain them to you. Two distinct events. He talks about what's going to happen 40 years from the time where He's speaking, sitting on the Mount of Olives, Talking to them, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Forty years from that time, on 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was totally destroyed. Then, secondly, he talks about another event, and that is the time immediately before his return. You say, Michael, how do you know that? Well, in the 70 A.D. time, the events he talks about, those days that took many, 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 many days for Jerusalem to fall and for the temple to be destroyed. (coughs) Forgive me. But then he switches and says, on that day, talking about the day of his return, is going to be fast, it's going to be quick, it's it's not going to take a long time. Uh, Those who will be living in the time of the return of Christ They're going to not take even hours or minutes. It's going to be seconds in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But before I do all of this, before I get to those two events that he talks about here, I'm going to come clean with you. Now, I'm not going to confess any sins, but that's okay. (laughs) i got a lot of sins to confess, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come clean with you about the theological positions that people have held about this for the last 200 years. Trust me when I tell you, prior to 825, these positions did not exist. People did not really have these theological positions about the end of time. It was a man by the name of John Nelson Darby in Plymouth, England. Um, He was an Anglican minister, but he founded the Plymouth Brethren Movement. He's the one who came up with this. And later on, of course, Schofield developed it and became what's really common among evangelicals in the West today. All three positions I'm going to share with you are held by wonderful, read my lips, wonderful, good, and godly Bible teachers. I love them all. I respect them all. I said, when I was doing the book of Revelation a zillion years ago, I shared this. But since then, there are a lot of new members here, so I want to go over these again. So to remind you, for those who have heard them, for those who have not heard that before, to know when you're listening to this person or that person. I'm not going to mention names. (laughs) So you know what positions they hold. Three different positions held by Again, let me repeat. I'm sounding like a, a, a broken record here. Wonderful, godly people. <laughs> Did you get that? Say amen. amen. Okay, I'm not going to repeat that. The godly theologians. First, there's a group of theologians who believe that the believers, the church of Jesus Christ, the elect, will not go through the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation that the Bible talks about here. They will not go through it, that they'll be ruptured before the tribulation takes place. This is called pre-tribulation, pre-trib. Did you get that? Okay. I pray to God they're right. I got, I got news for you. I'm as much of a chicken as, in, as, as the rest of them. The second group, in fact, one of our team members hold to that second position, which, as I said, we are a, a group of eclectic Bible-loving team, pastoral team here, love each other, and we, because none of this thing is going to affect your salvation. <laughs> it's called mid-trib. That is, the church, the believers, are going to go halfway through the seven-year tribulation. That's three and a half years. It's called mid-trib. All right? The third position are those who say that we will, as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ, whoever is going to be around at that time, before the return of Christ, are going to go through the tribulation. These called post-trib. Take your pick. It's not going to affect your salvation. Are you with me? God bless you. Thank you because it really hurt me deeply if I think somebody, and oh, please don't send me letters. <laughs> don't come and see me after the service. I have no axe to grind. Normally, some people tear up this one and tear this one because they have one. I don't have a position. I really don't. As a matter of fact, back in 1981, a dear friend of mine who's a well-known Christian publisher and I were having breakfast, and because we found that both of us we really don't have a, a position. We couldn't buy into any of these. And we said, let's start a fourth one. And we did. But it didn't take off. Let me tell you what it is. Maybe I can get some followers today. We called it pan-tribulationless. You say, Michael, what is that? We're going to wait and see how it's going to pan out. <laughs> All right. Listen, I speak with the heart of a past and a grandfather. I believe we ought to be prepared and prepare our children for whatever eventuality may come. We need to train our children, grandchildren, that we need to speak to them honestly and thoughtfully to be prepared for whatever may come. Now, with that background, what is this abomination of desolation that the prophet Daniel spoke about? Now, let me tell you, all theologians of all stripes, reformed, dispensationalists, all theologians agree on one thing, that this abomination was committed by Antikos IV. He is a Greek name, but he was a Syrian king who ruled over Palestine, which is modern Israel, between 175 and 165 B.C. He called himself the Magnificent God. Now, of course, his enemies... uh, Played on the Greek name, his name, and called him the madman or or the insane one. And he really was. I mean, he slaughtered uh, countless thousands of Jewish men and and he sold the women and children into slavery. He desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar. And then he forced the Jewish priest to eat its flesh. and, and, And then he set up on the temple the idol. Zeus, the pagan god. But I'm sure so many of you bright people, and I know, I know you're very bright, and so many of you are going to ask me, Michael, if he desecrated the temple back then, before Jesus, maybe 200 years before Jesus was speaking here on the Mount of Olives, How come Jesus is talking about this as a future event? Great question. I'm glad you thought it. I really am. I'm very glad you thought that. Now, you can take this one of two ways. Again, you're not going to lose your salvation. Good people on both sides. You can take this, as some people do, that when the Antichrist comes, He is going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which means he's going to have to destroy the mosque that is now on top of that temple. And you know what's going to happen if that ever takes place. I don't want to even contemplate that. And there he's going to desecrate it after he builds it. Or you take the Reformed position, the Reformed theologian's position, who believe that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are going to experience this desecration of the Antichrist, that we will experience the pain uh, of the blasphemy of watching the abomination of the Antichrist, that we, the temple of the Holy Spirit, will go through the agony of watching that evil creature Exalting himself above everything that's called God and become an object of worship. That we, the temple of the Holy Spirit, would go through this unspeakable grief of watching people, some of them are loved ones, who will bow down and worship that evil, wicked emissary of Satan known as the Antichrist. Again, it's your choice. The words of our Lord here saying, Let the reader understand, is his way of saying that this is a warning to the generation who's going to be living immediately before the return of Christ. Are you with me? Those who will be living in the last days, let that be a warning. Let that generation who will be living. At the end times, understand the truth of the Scripture and discern the trials that they will be enduring. Verses 16 to 28, the Lord is saying that His second coming should be a motivation, both to the non-believers and to the believers. You say, Michael… Are you crazy? The second coming should be motivational to the non-believer? Yes. It really should. And we should not be embarrassed to talk about it with non-believers. You see, for the non-believers, when they understand that the Lord's return is going to be a day of dreadful judgment for them, they'll be motivated to repent and turn to the Lord and receive Him as Savior and Lord. For the believers, this should motivate us to lovingly share the message of salvation with anyone who would listen. Verses 16 to 28, here again the Lord talks about these two events. One that took place in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem fell at the hands of the Romans. Verse 16, for example, he said, those in Judea, this is the region, by the way, this is kind of like county. Around Jerusalem, that's the Judean hills. That's that's Judea. Escape to the mountain. The second event, verse twenty-one, he talks about the end times. But then, if you read both Jewish and Christian historians, you can read both Josephus and Eusebius. Read, read historians about the events of 70 AD when Jesus precisely in details predicted what's going to happen 40 years later and how literally it took place just as our lord said the temple was it was raised to the ground the horrifying account of what the romans have done and here was a warning for those in judea flee to the mountains He was warning them of the severity of what's going to happen 40 years from that moment, and He was warning the disciples. Why? Because the Romans were determined to destroy the temple, and those in the Judean region were in danger, immediate danger. The amazing thing to me is this. How throughout history, throughout history, Satan... Wanted to destroy the people of Israel throughout history, throughout history, whether it would be from the Persians and before that, and throughout history. Do you know why Satan wanted to do that? Because he knew that through them the seed of the Messiah is gonna come. That's why. See, Satan knew of the conversation that he had with God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You can do it like this, Genesis 3, 15, okay? (laughs) Genesis 3, 15. Here's what God said, and I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Listen carefully. He, that is Jesus, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head. And He did. On the cross. But you, Satan, will strike His heel. Put Him on the cross. Oh, but the tomb is empty. Only touch the heel. Only touch the heel. Amen? But ever since that encounter... Satan tried again and again and again and again to destroy the redemptive plan of God for mankind. Again and again, he tried to eliminate the Jews before Jesus was born. But even after Jesus was born, lived, died on a cross, rose again, glorified, ascended into heaven, he's now trying to destroy his followers. And so much of the events of the 70 AD, but before I leave this section, I want to point to you something very, very important about this passage, very, very important. Underline it. What is Jesus saying here? I think there is a bigger principle, a bigger principle that we need to learn here. Our Lord is saying that no possession, remember he said, don't go back and get it, no possession would be worth the risk of delaying your coming and following God eternally that the horror of the judgment should create in us single-mindedness for eternal salvation. And that is why Jesus said, What shall profit a man, I dare say a woman, anyone, what shall profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Verse 21, Our Lord then switches from those days to that day, that day immediately prior to His return, there will be a great tribulation, such as never occurred before, beginning of time or since, or or even after that. The book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 16, when you see the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of judgment, you you find a graduate escalation of judgment, graduate escalation gradual escalation. In Revelation 6, when the sixth seal of judgment is broken, there is a great earthquake and the sun and the moon are darkened. This is a reference to what our Lord Jesus is saying here in in Matthew 24. Thankfully, He's going to shorten the daylight to give His fleeing children a break to protect them in the cover of darkness, as it were. God will use the darkness for the sake of the elect, using it to hide them uh, from their would-be destroyer. Then comes the most important part, verses 23 to 28. There will be utter confusion. Now, I'm going to confess to you, At that point in my study, I put the text aside and I began to pray. I'm opening my heart to you so you understand. And I said, Lord, surely is it going to get worse than this? Is it going to be more confusing than this? And then comes my wife, and showing me in the British papers. I put the camera on there because I really don't want to read this. It just devastated me. Four-year-olds can change, and the teachers cannot tell their parents. This is this week, in the day when I'm crying to God saying, Can it really get any more confusing, Lord? Verse 23. Then at that time, or during that time, that is of the end time, when anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, there he is. Don't believe them. Those who take Jesus' advice and flee from false teachers and false preachers, those who dwell in the shadow of the Word of God, those who will not fall for the deception of the Antichrist, those who will not bow down and worship Him, even though their own spirits will be vexed when the others do and capitulate, uh, those who will take cover in the shadow of the one true Christ those who will turn their backs on earthly securities and accept, an acceptance by the culture, those who refuse to accept the mark of the beast, those who hold tenaciously onto biblical truth, those who who refuse to go after false, miraculous workers, those who refuse to follow preachers and follow who preaching false gospels, they are the ones who are going to be victorious. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Verse 24 is a verse that truly followed this one that really made me weep. But it needs some explanation. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles and deceive. And here it comes. Here it comes. If it is even possible. I was referring to that verse one time many years ago. And a dear brother who went to be with the Lord now, but he really left that he was angry, he said, you're saying that the elect will be deceived. I said, I didn't say that. <laughs> I never said that. I am reading. You, you read it. Read 24, please, for yourself, and, and, and see the words of Jesus, not my words. If it is even possible, that's why I need explanation. I need to explain it to you. Even if it's possible. Beloved, Satan has never been able to deceive the true Christian believers. I'm not talking about the hangers on or the look like Christians. I'm talking about the true believers. Why? Because Jesus said in John chapter 10 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish and no one can snatch him out of my hand. And this is what we call the eternal security of the believers. Once a person comes to Christ, surrendering to him, no one, including Satan himself, will be able to snatch him from his hand. Scripture from cover to cover affirmed this. This is just not one verse. True believers will not be destroyed on the day of judgment because our Lord sovereignly protects them. But nonetheless, look at this verse, nonetheless, protected as they are, some under Satan's verbal assault will get shaken up under the severe, terrible turmoil, will have their confidence shaken up some under the duress of false messiahs and false preachers and false teachers. They will be battered, and they're going to lose their equilibrium. For some, when they see those horrific signs in the heavens, with the world falling apart, stars falling from heaven, sun and moon lights being radically reduced, Millions are dying from diseases and starvation. Thousands of their contemporaries are in dire straits. They will become emotionally drained and utterly vulnerable to the subterfuge of false Christ. Take heed. Take heed. I, I say that to myself. Be forewarned. Uh, if it wasn't for God's protecting hand, if it's not for God's protecting hand. Now, I'm going to stop here for a moment. I'm aware of the fact, I'm conscious of the fact, even though from day one, when Ben Hayden walked into this place 20 years ago and gave me his television ministry... And then, of course, of late, I'm aware of the fact that we are watched around the world by hundreds of thousands of people in 120 countries. I'm aware of that, but I always preach to this congregation. I'm so grateful for them, eavesdropping, and I'm so glad they are, and we welcome them with open arms, but I always speak to this congregation, and for those who could not be here watching online... But I really want to take specifically, I want to talk, just take a moment and speak to the members of the Church of the Apostles, okay? It's the burden of my heart. I'm going to take a moment as your under-shepherd. The reason at the very heart of the vision of this church is the home groups and the small groups, small communities, is that no matter what happens in the future, No matter what happens in the world, no matter what this world throws at us, being in a Christ-centered, loving community is a must. It is not a luxury. It's a must. If you don't belong to one of the nearly 100 home groups, you need to be. There's going to be Group Connect next Sunday. Flooded at 9 o'clock next Sunday. <laughs> <coughs> Talk to TJ. Where's TJ Darman? Where's TJ sitting? TJ is there. Uh, you all know TJ. I mean, this is a great pastor. If you don't know him, you need to know him. <clears throat> Talk to him. He's starting new groups all the time. This is the only way we're going to wither whatever it is, may come our way. I couldn't, I couldn't help that burden that was laid on my heart as I was preparing this message. It is my longing of my heart that every member of this church belongs to a home group, to a small group. As I was thinking about those dreadful days that we may face... We might not, but we may face. I felt compelled to exhort every member to be in a community because we need to uphold each other. I mean, the stories I hear about how these home groups just love on each other and encourage each other and support each other in times of need, it's just too moving for words. Look at verse 25 with me. See, I have told you this ahead of time. Isn't just like our Lord. He always gives us a warning. In other words, be ready. Be prepared. Don't let those days take you by surprise. Surprise. Protect yourself and your family ahead of time. So you're not surprised. How? Verse 27 For just as the lightning comes from the east and visible even from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You know what? I'm going to say a whole lot more about this in the next couple of messages, and I can't wait. I just hope I don't levitate. Suffice it to to tell you just a few things, very few things. Very few things, very quickly. What does that mean? Lightning in the East and the West. He is saying the coming, returning of Christ, is not going to be stretched over a long period of time. His coming is not going to take days or even hours. His coming is going to be quick and sudden. His coming is going to be loud and public everyone in the world, everyone in the universe is going to see it. They're going to see that glorious, glorious event. It doesn't matter whether in Australia or in the Middle East or in America, North America, South America, and Asia. Every eye shall see Him. Remember in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 11, when the disciples who've been with Jesus three years and one-third of a year see Him after they've seen Him resurrected, lived with Him after the resurrection for 40 days, and then they their jaws were dropping to the ground as they saw him going up, and they just didn't know, literally were speechless. And the angel said to them, "Why are you so surprised? This same Jesus, whom you're seeing taken up from you, is going to come back in like manner." In Revelation one seven, John's vision said, "Behold, he's coming with the clouds." What is this clouds? Is this a cloud that brings rain? No, clouds in the Bible means people. Clouds means people. Those who have gone before us are going to be with Him, and they're going to come with Him. These are the clouds the Bible talks about in Hebrews, for example. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. That's what the Bible talks about, cloud. Not the cloud that brings rain. We're talking about the, the, the beloved ones who have gone to heaven. They're going to come with Him, and they're going to come. That cloud are going to be with Him, and we're going to meet them in the air. Because the air is the domain of Satan, because he is the prince of the air, and we're going to defeat him when we meet Jesus in the air. Every eye will see him, and it's going to be quick, and it's going to be fast. It'll be like lightning. You see it in the east. You see it in the west. Everybody's going to see it. And beloved friends, the book of revelation says in 6:15 6, and 16 the kings of the earth and the celebrities the princes the famous ones the commanders and the rich and the mighty the slaves and the free they will hide in caves among the rocks and the mountains they will be calling on the mountains and the rocks fall on us hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb and for our British friend, the wrath of the Lamb. It will be seen from every corner of the globe. Don't ask me how. He will make it possible. Verse 28, whenever you see there is a carcass, there's a vulture, vultures will gather. It's a common proverb at that time, and even today, we still talk about it. And when we see vultures, we say there must be a dead bird somewhere. What it means at the end of the Great Tribulation, the world is going to be laid waste. Christ is going to appear and is going to clean house. And then the new Jerusalem is going to come, and Christ will reign and rule in righteousness and in truth. And I can't wait. Now, here's a conclusion. I always anticipate, because if I'm not thinking what you think, thinking, I mean, I'm, I'd really try to put myself my, in all of my preparation. I always put myself in your place and I said what you're thinking and what, otherwise I'm not relevant to you. And I said, if I'm sitting where you are, I, I would want to ask me, well, Michael, how should we react? How would you react after that word from the Word of God, I would do two things. First of all, I'll keep my eyes and the eyes of my family on the signs of the birth pains. No, I'm not going to put on white robes and head for the mountains. No, no, no. Just keep my eyes on that. Not get distracted from serving and giving and doing. I keep my eyes on it. And the second thing I'll do is pray for revival. Pray for revival. Pray for revival. I'm going to say more about this later in the series. Steve Alford, was a British evangelist, called revival an invasion from heaven that brings a consciousness of God. That holy invasion from heaven will not take place until we, the believers want God more than we want sin. Think about this. David Wilkerson, pastor in New York, went to be with the Lord, said there are a lot of people these days who are having great emotional experience right now and calling it revival. But revival will come when we run away from sin and run toward God. Now, beloved, we live between two worlds. Scripture makes that very clear. We're in the here and now. We're to serve now, faithfully, do all we can in every waking moment. So we live between the here and now and yet to come. And the yet to come, the yet to come is the glorious return of Christ. In the next message, I'll show you how it's going to be sudden, but it's going to be loud. I don't believe in a secret rupture, rapture. I don't believe I, I think it's gonna be so loud, everybody will see it. Everybody will see it. But for those praying and watching, those who are serving and preparing, they're not gonna be surprised. They're gonna be pleasantly surprised, but they're not gonna be surprised because they're waiting. They're preparing. They're praying. They prayed up, and they're waiting up. So we're not going to be surprised. We're going to be delighted. We're going to be thrilled. Father, may no one at the sound of my voice be unprepared like those five bridesmaids who did not have oil. May no one May no one, you are the searcher of every heart. I can only proclaim what your word said. But only you, Holy Spirit, can convict, convert, and consecrate. For I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.